Bibles, will you turn with me again to Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9. And we shall read verse 1 through 23. Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 23. A day of feasting and gladness. Now, in the twelfth month, this is verse 1 of Esther chapter 9, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased on those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adalia, and Aradatha, and Pomashta, and Arasai, and Aradai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. And so the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, the ten sons of Haman were hanged. And the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces, also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day a, feast, a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews, who were in Susa, gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded all these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month 
that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. And we'll stop there and, uh, Lord willing, the next time we'll conclude and finish the rest of the chapter in chapter 10. Now I want you to notice that we can divide this chapter, the whole chapter, uh, into two broad divisions or sections. First of all, you have in verses 1 through 19, days of destruction and deliverance. Days of destruction and deliverance. And verse 20 through verse 28, the remainder of the chapter 9, days of feasting and gladness. So what you find in this passage before us is the, the end of all that uh, uh, Esther and Mordecai have desired, the achieving of victory over Haman and his plans and uh, over the planned destruction of the people of the Jews. Verses 1 through 19 is all about the reversing of the plan of Haman's, his decree of destruction. And at the same time, it's about bringing about the achieving or the achieving of the plans of Mordecai, uh, the decree to defend and to save lives. So Haman's decree is here, and Mordecai's decree is there, and the one is to destroy all the Jews, and the other is to destroy the enemy of the Jews. Then, in verses 20 through 28, they provide us with a response to that deliverance that was achieved in the opening verses 1 through 19. When I think about that broadly, I mean, here is a picture of salvation. When you read your Bible, it doesn't matter where you read, I believe, you can always find something that points us to salvation. Something that points us to Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the center of all of Scripture doesn't matter whether it's Genesis or Chronicles or Malachi or Esther or anywhere in the New Testament. When you read your Bible, it centers on none other than the Son of the living God, our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have, I think, a picture of salvation. Sin is the great enemy, isn't it? I mean, there's no question about it if you're a Christian. You recognize that sin is the enemy that you have, a personal enemy, always with you, always troubling you, always seeking to destroy. I mean, that's the whole purpose of sin. So sin uh, has determined to destroy us. And in one sense, when you think about sin, sin is not a, a static thing or a non-entity. Sin is real and alive and active, certainly. Sin takes no prisoners. Sin seeks one thing only, not your good, but your destruction. And it passes decrees of destruction continually upon us. It sends them out against us. Who do you think you are? You're so bad. You're sinful. And look at the sins you've committed. And sin is accusing all the time and producing in us this sinfulness and these sins that we commit. But I did say it was a picture of salvation, right? Now, on the one hand, we have sin. And you know, we as Christians may focus too much on our sinfulness and our sins. Instead of focusing on the great deliverer, the great Mordecai, if you like, on Jesus himself, who has provided relief for us, who has given rest to us from our enemy, 
who has decreed a decree of destruction against the enemy of sin and has brought it to pass himself by dying on the cross. And if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress or if you've read John Bunyan's Holy War, you get a very great picture of the substitution that has been made and the effects that it has upon the life of a pilgrim, of a Christian. Our destruction at the hands of sin has been averted because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is achieved, of course, by Jesus at the cross, only at the cross. You cannot bypass the cross. If Christian would get to the celestial city, he must go by way of the cross. He cannot escape the city of destruction uh, and cry out for life, life, everlasting life, and bypass the city of destruction. Oh, he may take this way into the slough of despond for a period of time, but he soon discovers that that is the way of sin and that is the way of trouble, and he gets into trouble when he takes the path away from the narrow way. And on the narrow way, of course, there is Apollyon and there the dragon and the beast and all of these things to trouble him. There are thorns and thickets and there are briars and there are, there are, there's a difficult way to heaven. These are the words of the Lord Jesus, right? That narrow is the gate. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. The way to destruction is easy and there are many on it, but the way that leads to heaven is narrow and it's hard and there are few that are on that road. And the teaching of the Bible is when we consider salvation, that salvation is not universal to every single human being because men and women reject the Lord Jesus Christ want nothing to do with Him. And so God, it is clear, has from eternity past, of course, determined to save a people for Himself who are a treasured possession, a people who are precious to Him. And Jesus, of course, has come to fulfill the decree of God to save those people by giving Himself for them. And so it's Jesus who saves His people from their sins. It's not your willpower. It's not your desires to change your life, make amends. No, that's not salvation. Salvation is never to be found in what we do, whether it's baptism or belong to a church or be a member in a church or think that you're a good person. No, salvation is never by that. Salvation is always simply by grace, by God's grace. And so Jesus saves His people from their sins. He delivers them from sin and He sets them free. What a great Savior we have. What a great salvation we have. So the first thing I want you to take note of is the reversal. The reversal of what Haman intended. You see in verse 1 there, it's the 12th month. The time has come, right? It was always scheduled for the 12th month, month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. Now, why did the enemies of the Jews hope to gain mastery? Because Haman had given a decree, made a decree. It's the decree of the law. It's the law of the Medes and Persians. cannot be uh, revoked. And so Haman's decree stands, and we must keep this in our minds. Haman's decree is out there in the provinces, everywhere out there, that on this day you are to rise up against the Jews and destroy them. But there was another decree. Mordecai's decree, which is also out there in the provinces. And that decree, of course, is what brings about this verse here when we read about that on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped and planned to gain mastery over them, that the reverse actually happened. The Jews gained mastery over those 
who hated them. That's a broad introduction, by the way, verse 1, to the contents of chapter 9. So what you read about in chapter 9 is about the occurrence of that reversal, about the events of, of how that decree of Haman's was overturned by the decree of Mordecai. Now this is the twelfth month, of course, so this is nine months beyond when Mordecai first wrote his decree and issued the new decree, the new law, that gave the Jews permission to defend themselves. If you go back to chapter 8 and look at verse 9, it says that the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month. So now it's the twelfth month, right? So in the third month was when the scribes were summoned to record and write Mordecai's decree. And uh, that's written in the name of King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus and sent out with the king's signet ring sealing the, the, the edict sent out to all the 127 provinces. Now, nine months later, verse 1 of chapter 9, uh, it's nine months after that decree was sent out. So there has been time to, for the Jews to make preparations to defend themselves. And the decree of Mordecai it was that which gave them permission to <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> defend their lives. Now I think it's clear in verse 1 that Haman's decree has some support, right? Because on that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to gain mastery over the Jews themselves. So out there in the provinces, Haman has supporters. They've received the decree. They don't like the Jews. In fact, they are called the enemies of the Jews here in verse 1. So in the 127 provinces stretching from Ethiopia to India, right across the Persian Empire, all of these enemies of the Jews are seeking to enact and fulfill the decree of wicked Haman. And so, so it's clear that there is support for Haman still out there in the provinces. Notice that on that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, what happened? End of verse 1, right? The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Haman, of course, is called the enemy of the Jews. His followers are the, uh, the enemies of the Jews. And a number of times we've already discovered that Haman is always described, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And his supporters, whether they are intentional or otherwise, are the enemies of the Jews. Notice the plural, right? The enemies of the Jews. Remember that Persia is not just made up of Persians. It's made up of many ethnicities from Ethiopia to India, all different kinds of people, tribes, small groups, but they all fall under King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus, all under his rule in Persia. He rules over all of them. How does he rule over such a massive empire? He rules over them through his royal officials and his governors and his satraps and so on, right? Those that he called in chapter 1 to drink with him so that he could unfold to them his plans of war against Greece and seek to win their support for that war. And so, here these people, groups across Persia, make up the enemies of the Jews. I, I don't think every single person, but certainly a wide variety of people from many ethnicities. And notice how the Bible describes them in verse 1 at the end, those who hated the Jews. Those who hated the Jews. So the second thing to notice in verse 2, the first thing is the reversal. 
The second thing to notice in verse 2 is the preparation to resist. Right, so reversal occurs, but preparation is made to resist. And resist who, we would ask, right? So we notice that it is the Jews gathered in the cities, verse 2, throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus, to lay hands on those who sought their harm. So to resist whom? Those who sought their destruction or their harm. And what kind of preparation did they engage in? Well, they were gathered together. They gathered together across the empire, in all of the cities in the empire, to defend themselves in every province of Persia. But it's really the last sentence of verse 2, right? That puts it in perspective for us. No one could stand against them. No one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. And so the action taken by the Jews, and I think this is a very important point to notice, the action taken by the Jews is defensive rather than vengeance. This is not about revenge. This is about defense, saving their lives. And uh, so here we, we find that they, they gather to defend themselves. You stand against those who would destroy them. And the fear of them had fallen, the Bible says, on all the peoples. And third, you should notice in verse 3 how extensive the support for the Jews really is. Verse 3 says, All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. Now, you know, I think this is a political uh, move. They're smart. You know, you've you got to support the guy who's got all the power. Haman, actually, he's no more. He's hanged. He's dead. He's been dead for nine months. Okay, so now what are we going to do? Well, these governors are smart political operators, and so they throw their support behind Mordecai. He's the king's man. And this is just standard human uh, political action, right? So every official, notice all the officials of the provinces and satraps and governors and agents, they also help the Jews. Why? Because the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. The fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. So all the people at large and all the officials at large, there's something going on here that has brought about the fear of the Jews and the fear of Mordecai upon them. And certainly when you think about that, verses 1 through 3 are setting the stage for a comprehensive victory over uh, uh, the enemies of the Jews. The text will tell us that no one could stand against them. None. No one able to stand. Now, you know, this is, this is the biblical pattern that God has laid down. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 24, that God will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. That's the promise to Israel. They're about to enter the land of promise, the land of Canaan. God says that kings will be given into their hands, and certainly that's what happened across the Jordan River, right, when they took possession of the land. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 25, No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread, just as He promised you. So this expression at the end of verse 2, right, is reminiscent of God's promises then to Israel. You notice the end of verse 2, the fear of them 
had fallen on all the peoples. This is just simply reminiscent of the promises of God to Israel in the Old Testament that they would overcome their enemies. And I think that's exactly how we should see it right here in Esther as we read it here. Now you know, we confess, don't we? Because we know that God's hand is everywhere in Esther. Even though you never read His name, God is not mentioned anywhere, yet we now know that the activity of God and who God is and what God is doing is everywhere uh, prevalent in the book of Esther. In fact, it's God who is acting behind the scenes. I mean, think of Mordecai just for a moment. Mordecai occupies himself with the daily business of the king. He sits in the king's gate. And he's like a scribe and he makes records and he, he records things. And Haman rides by every day. You remember and how mad and angry Haman used to get because Mordecai just looked at him and probably carried on working, doing his business. Paid no attention, no regard for Haman. And that really stirred him up. Haman had never really thought about Mordecai until it was pointed out to him by the people who said to Mordecai, look, you need to pay attention to this guy, Haman. And the king says we are to give uh, obeisance to Haman. So you need to, you need to think about that Mordecai. And Mordecai just ignored Haman and ignored them and went about his work. That's his ordinary daily life. He's just one among many who sits in the king's gate and who goes about the business of the king. But, but what a difference, right, there now is in Mordecai. Now, how do you explain the difference in Mordecai? You can only explain it by God. That it's God who has brought this about. That God is sovereignly working among the exiles who have actually stayed behind and not returned to the land. And you remember that God said you'll go into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. When the 70 years are over, Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 29, then you will be able to return. And of course, under Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua the high priest, a group returned. And then under Ezra, a group returned. And then under Nehemiah, a group returned. And so over a period from 536 all the way down to 445 with Nehemiah, uh, over that 90-year period or so that the Jews have been returning, but many Jews have stayed behind. And there's been a change in power, hasn't there? It's no longer Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, but it's now Persia and Cyrus the Great and Darius the Mede. And, and it's come all the way down now to Ahasuerus or Xerxes who reigns. And so... Here we discover, I think, when we really think about it as believers, that it is God. That is God out there in the nations, right? That it is God in our nation. No matter what politicians, no matter what governors, no matter what authorities, at in whatever level they find themselves, may plan to do, it is God. It is God who accomplishes His will and God who accomplishes purposes. And even in the seemingly trifling and insignificant things of your life and my life, it is God, the same God who works on the lives of kings, who works in your life and who works in my life. And so I discover when I read a book like Esther that it is God who is always active and always working on behalf of His people. Whether they really know it or not, it's God who is working. You should see the greatness of Mordecai, as I've been saying in verse 4, right? In verse 4, Mordecai was great in the king's house. His fame spread through all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. So uh, when I think about that, I can say that's only God who has brought that about. God who has brought that to pass. 
If you had looked at Haman in Persia, you would have thought he's indestructible. Nothing can happen to him. All the power is in his hands. The only person greater than Haman is the king, is Ahasuerus. Haman is the most powerful man over 127 provinces. How can he be upended? Not certainly just by Esther or Mordecai, but by God. Only God. And so we are faced in a world today of, of chaos, of trouble. Even our own country and our culture is changing and not for the good and not for the better. Do not doubt for one moment that God has abandoned his people. God never abandons his people. And yes, God rules over the nations who seem to accomplish great things for evil. But yet God turns evil around, doesn't he? The wickedness of Haman into the achievements of Mordecai and Esther. The ascent of Mordecai to power is not Mordecai. The ascent of any man to the throne of any place or power is only of God. Only of God. In fact, if you work in a job and you get some kind of promotion, you should see it as only of God. Not because you work long hours, though you should work hard. Not because you, you are better than others, though you should endeavor to strive to work to the best of your ability. No, it's only because of God. And only God can accomplish these great things. We read Romans chapter 8, did we not? That is God who works all things for good. And so Mordecai, who has just seemed to have gotten on with his business, is now catapulted, it would appear, through the intercession of Esther into this prominent power. It reminds me of Joseph, you know, out of the pit, in the pit in the morning, out of the pit in the day, shaved, cleaned up before Pharaoh, at the end of the day, ruler over Egypt. It's not Joseph. It's God, right? It's God who does such things. Joseph scarcely gave that a thought another day in the pit, serving the prisoners. I'll do it for the glory of God, which is exactly how he thought. And God had other plans for that young man, Joseph. Hauled him out of the pit, right away, just by making Pharaoh have a couple of bad dreams. Right? And I love how Pharaoh responds to Joseph right after Joseph has outlined the plan of recovery for Egypt. He looks around at his wise men and he says, is there anybody like this guy? It's nobody. This is the man. It's like he's just fallen from somewhere. He's been sent by God, right, to deliver not just the Egyptians, but Jacob and his sons and their families. God, behind the scenes. And in fact, Joseph says that, doesn't he, many, many years later. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And God sent me ahead of you. Though they put him in chains and cast him in the pit while he's in the chains, as the psalm says, bound with fetters and in such pain, and he's being dragged off to Egypt. Later on, he comes to realize it was God who was dragging me to Egypt in the chains. To put me into the pit, though I had done nothing wrong. To raise me up and set me over all of Egypt. That's just like Esther and Mordecai, not to that extent, but how can you doubt the hand of God and the power of God, right? When I think about that, life is not mundane, though you might think so. Now this morning, I was preparing myself for worship this morning, and I have a number of volumes of Spurgeon, so I just reached up, 1863, 
Spurgeon's 29 years of age. In fact, in my opinion, he was a far better preacher when he was younger than when he was older. Okay? Uh, not that he said anything wrong when he was older. But when you read his younger sermons, you get the sense of vigor, of life, of an understanding with God that is just sensitive and beautiful. Here's a sermon. I'm going to read you some of these things. The sermon is remarkable because it's called Paul, his cloak and his books. His cloak and his books. Now, who can preach on the cloak, right, of Paul? That's left behind. And he says, bring my cloak, right? Bring my clothes and bring my books. Only Spurgeon can come up with a sermon on that. This is what he says. He says, foolish persons have made remarks upon the trifles of Scripture. They have marveled why so little a matter as a cloak should be mentioned in the inspired book. But they ought to know that this is one of the many indications that the book is by the same author as the book of nature. Are there not things which our short-sightedness would call trifles in the volume of creation all around us? What is the peculiar value of the daisy upon the lawn or the buttercup in the meadow? Compare that with the rolling sea or the eternal hills, how inconsiderable those flowers may seem to be. Why has the hummingbird a plumage so wondrously bejeweled and why is so much marvelous skill expended upon the wings of a butterfly? Why such curious machinery in the foot of the fly or such matchless optical arrangement in the eye of the spider? Because to most men these are trifles. Sorry, because to most men these are trifles, are they to be left out of nature's plans? No. Because greatness of divine skill is as apparent in the minute as it is in the magnificent. And even so, in Holy Scripture, the little things which are embalmed in the amber of inspiration are far from inappropriate or unwise. Besides, in providence, are there not trifles? It is not every day that a nation is rent by revolution or a throne shaken by rebellion. Far oftener a bird's nest is destroyed by a child or an anthill is overturned by a spade. It is not at every hour that a torrent inundates a province, but how frequently do the dew drops moisten the green leaves. We do not often read of hurricanes, tornadoes, and earthquakes, but the annals of providence could reveal the history of many a grain of dust borne along in the summer's gale, many a leaf rent from the poplar tree, and many a bulrush waving by the river's brim. Hence we learn to see in the little things of the Bible the God of providence and of nature. That is exactly right. Mr. Spurgeon, the trifles. What do you see in the trifles of life? You see, we want the big things. Even in our Christian experience, even in the reformed Christian world, we want the, we want the splendid, we want the, the magnificent, we want to be celebrities, we want to be great, we want to be, we want to be out there. Listen, God is working in the trifles. When the wind just takes a little leaf flying by, it's as big as a revolution when a nation is upended. Is that how you see providence? You should. It's beautiful when you think about it. Life is not mundane in the seemingly insignificant and trivial details of my life 
and your life. In my life and your life, in the seemingly insignificant nothingness of it, God is sovereign and is working to accomplish, to weave together all His purposes so that all things work together for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. You see, you're not nothing, and you're not insignificant. No, we are loved by God. Can anything separate us, as we read tonight, from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing can do that. It applies that God is working and accomplishes His purpose in all of His saints. Think of Abraham, think of Isaac, think of Jacob. Oh, lives of trouble, right? Especially Abraham and especially Jacob. Oh, Jacob's life is just full of trouble. God. God working in that man's life. Now think of Joseph. And think of Moses. And think of Samuel. And think of David. And think of the saints of the Old Testament Scriptures. God, God, God. Or take the life of a Moabitess, Ruth, pagan. God just comes and intervenes and brings her into the line of Messiah. Or think about Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, into the line of Messiah. Can you ever comprehend such things? Grace, 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 right? Salvation. That's what it is. You see, let us be about the business of living for God, of living for His glory, of depending upon God, of believing that He is active in the trifles of life, the mundanes of life. He is just as active in the mundane aspects of my life and your life as He is when He deposes a tyrant from a throne. Just as active. Just as real. Mordecai is described, you look at verse 4, he is the man Mordecai. I like that. The man Mordecai, that's all he is. He is the man Mordecai. God is the great. Mordecai is just the instrument. Mordecai is just the man. You know, the Bible tells us in Exodus that the man Moses was very great. Recognized by all. But when you looked at Moses and you talked to Moses, you would come away from talking to Moses, and you would probably have to confess, there goes, as God said of him, the meekest man in all the world. Moses, leader, the meekest man, putting up with so much trouble, so much impatience, so much complaining against him and against God, bearing with all of that through all of his life. What a remarkable work of grace. Do not doubt that God can do the same. He could do it in your life and mine. So when all is said and done right, we are flesh and God is God. So what happened? Verse 5, the Jews struck all their enemies. <laughs> and notice only their enemies. Now I ask myself this question, well, how would you know if you were a Jew in Persia, right, which Persian was your enemy? How would you know? Well, the answer is quite simple. If he attacked you. Right? That's how you know if he attacks you. Because they are defending themselves. This is the point, I think, of the passage, right? Verse 5 stresses that, that these are enemies of the Jews who hated the Jews. Like Haman. I don't think every... Every person, as I said before, in Persia hated the Jews, but these are particular. They are the enemies of the Jews who hate the Jews. 
And so if you were attacked on this day, right, 12th month, 13th day, you defended yourself. You've been ready for it. Now you notice in the capital, in Susa itself, the citadel, verse 6, 500 enemies and the ten sons of Haman are killed. Now I think Haman's sons, right, belong to the house of Haman and the house of Haman was given to Esther by King Xerxes. And, King, and Esther then gave it to Mordecai. Mordecai rules over the house of Haman. But within the house of Haman, there is fomenting going on. The ten sons of Haman are still nine months later active in their hatred for the Jews themselves. Well, they are killed, along with 500 men in the capital. Presumably, the ten sons of Haman attacked the Jews, right? And they were killed. They were not executed. They were killed. Haman was executed, but later on, Esther makes this rather strange request to have them hanged on the gallows, presumably the same gallows that might still be standing from Haman. To be hanged on the gallows is really the word, the idea is about impaling, right? A horrific way to, be, to die. But then after they were killed, their bodies are left there. This is Persian practice. And why are the bodies left there? As a warning, you... Do wrong, you're like that, right? Made a public spectacle, height of humiliation and degradation to be left impaled somewhere. Shaka the Zulu, some of you may have heard of Shaka the Zulu, back in the 1800s, uh, grew up as an outcast in the Zulu tribe because he wasn't the firstborn. His mother wasn't uh, of the royal line and so he grew up uh, as an outcast from the other Zulu boys who were royal sons, but he was powerful and having been cast out by his family and by his brothers, he developed himself into a mighty warrior and he returns back to the Zulu tribe, which is scattered by the way, there are many tribes that make up the Zulu people, and he returns to them and he gathers them together and he engages in warfare with them as a new kind of leader. He forms a, a new weapon. You know, they, the way they used to do battle was like the way they did battle in the Revolutionary War. You know, you stand up there and you shoot at the enemy and then you try to reload and shoot at the enemy. What the Zulus did was they threw the long assegais or spears and hoped that your throwing of the spear would actually kill the enemy. And the enemy threw theirs and you tried to avoid the spears and back and forth it went, right? Not Shaka. Shaka develops a short assegai with a broad blade and he holds it in his hand close to him and he develops a, a shield that is made of ox skins and is very firm. And when he goes to war, he does not stand far off from his enemy, but he runs right up to his enemy and kills him. And war was revolutionized in the Zulu tribe. And he destroyed his enemies because, you know, the enemies are not expecting such warfare. Face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat. And shark of the Zulu, of course, any enemy on a stick, up on a pole, in the tribal village, that's what happens to the enemies. That's what happened to the ten sons of Haman. So everybody can see and everybody can fear. Now you know public displays, right, of such things tend to have an effect upon people who observe them, don't they? I mean, think of the hangings that were done publicly, right, 150 years ago in the Wild West or around the world, right, designed to encourage the prevention of crime. Simply, as is a very good prevention, by the way. You just put up a, a public execution and people really get the idea 
that they shouldn't commit crime. We have wandered far from that now, have we not? Xerxes wonders as he sits there in the citadel, well, how many people have died across the empire? I mean, 500 have died and Haman's sons have been killed here in the very city. Uh, in verse 12, he wonders how many people across my empire have actually died, Esther. Well, what's happening out there across the empire, right? I mean, what's happening in the capital is one thing, but across the empire there's something going on. Here is the, the law of Haman and here is the law of Mordecai and two edicts are waging war against each other to gain the upper hand, right? Both of them with the king's signature, his signet ring on the stamp of the law. Haman's law cannot be revoked. Mordecai's law cannot be revoked. So two laws out there against each other. Which will prevail? The writer mentions no loss of Jewish life. Right? Notice verse 15. The following day in Susa, a further 300 men are killed. It's just, why a further 300? Mopping up operations. That's what it is, right? Mopping up operations, just cleaning it up. But across the empire, verse 16, 75,000 people dead. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text says 15,000 people. The Aramaic Targums say 10,107. I have no idea where they got the 107, but there you go. But why 75,000? Because you notice how 75,000, no Jewish loss of life. 75,000 enemies, no Jew dies or is said to have died. Why 75? Well, it certainly highlights, doesn't it, the scope, the comprehensiveness of the victory. No mention of Jewish loss, just of the enemies. So the writer intends for us to see that the Jews gained a solid victory comprehensive victory over their enemies. Haman's edict, by the way, back in chapter 3, verse 13, authorized the plundering of Jewish properties. Because you remember how Haman said to Xerxes, now look, if you put this into operation, I personally will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the coffers of the king. Now Xerxes, of course, needs money for war. So <laughs> here comes his lieutenant, right-hand man, saying, look, I'll... I'll put big money in there if you sign it. And uh, how was he going to get that money? Plunder the Jews. That's how he was going to obtain an exorbitant amount, right? In actual fact, when you work out 10,000 talents, it's just incredible, the, the value of it. And Mordecai, by the way, in his edict in chapter 8, records the same thing. The destruction of the enemies and the plundering of their property. But I want you to notice, look at verse 10, chapter 9. So at the end of verse 9, uh, verse seven, eight, 6, 7, 8, 9, about talking about the sons of Haman, it says at the end of verse 9, the enemy of the, but they laid no hand on the plunder. They laid no hand on the plunder. If you go down to verse 15, end of verse 15, but they laid no hand on the hands on the plunder. And again in verse 16, end of the verse, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Isn't that an interesting thing, right? Haman's edict was to plunder the Jews. Mordecai's edict actually included the clause, because it was a word-for-word -word clause uh, edict like Haman's edict, to plunder the Jews as well. But none of the Jews plundered the enemies. By the way, plunder is surely the fullest extent of vengeance. You leave nothing behind. Or to put it another way, extermination. Nothing left, right? Plundered everything. 
But that's not what they did. And I think this points to the fact that the motivation behind the Jews was simply the defense of their lives, not vengeance upon their enemies, but the defending of their very lives. Not to accumulate anything out of it, but to act in defense against it. And I think that's a strong argument, the fact that they did not plunder their enemies. For a strong argument for the fact that they were motivated simply by protecting their lives and their property. Alright, so let's consider the results. Verses 16 through 19. Verse 16 says they defended their lives. They got relief. Look at that verse. The rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces, so out there in the 127 provinces, they gathered to defend their lives and they got relief. On This, of course, is on the 13th day of the month. The New, king, the New American Standard says they rid. And the King James, New King James says they rested. This word relief or whatever it is, however it's interpreted, is simply speaking that there's going to be no more threats from their enemies. It's done. Right? So the resting that the verse talking about is that there's resting from the threat of destruction. It's over. It's the first thing. Second thing in verse 17 uh, it says, verse 17, this was on the 13th day, but on the 14th day, they rested. So another resting. Same word, by the way, from verse uh, 16. Now, new, this word nuach that you find in verse 17. They rested. So now I want you to notice this. Two rests. The first rest is the immediate rest in the context of warfare. The second rest is the rest in the context of celebration. And there is usually a great distinction between that. When you are occupied with something that, that takes all your energy and all uh, a lot of investment of emotional, whatever it is that you put into something, and you suddenly accomplish what it is, there's a resting period. But the next day or the next day after that, the resting is a little bit different. In the heat of the moment, the resting is, I've achieved it. And you relax. But the resting after is rejoicing. That you don't have to go through such a thing anymore, right? So an immediate rest and then a follow-up kind of rest. Thirdly, verse 17, it says that the 14th day, they rested and made that day a day of feasting and of gladness. So it's a day of rejoicing, day of celebration across the empire. Verse 19 stresses that it happened in the villages, in everywhere out there in the empire. But notice in the city of Susa, in verse 18, it's only on the 15th day, not the 14th day, but the 15th day that they actually get to rest and rejoice. Why is that? Why is it the 14th day in the provinces and the 15th day in the capital? Simple answer, right? 300 men were killed in the mopping up operations on the 14th day. That was not the day of rejoicing. It wasn't over in the city. But when it was over, on the 14th day, in Susa, on the 15th day, became this day of rejoicing. So twice now, in verse 17, verse 18, we read about a day of feasting and a day of gladness, which in verse 19 is called a day of gladness and feasting. The words are used interchangeably. And it was celebrated as a holiday. And Lord willing, next time I'll consider with you this whole subject of Purim uh, as we come to the end of the book. Not only a holiday, but a day to exchange gifts. A little bit like Christmas, right? Celebration. Rest. Family. Friends. Holidays. Gifts of food. Presumably to feast, to fellowship, and to recount their victory.
Similar, by the way, to chapter 2, verse 18, the declaring of relief by Xerxes, a public holiday. The King James uses the word release. The other translations use the word holiday, New American Standard, and so on. Hanukkah, a giving of rest. The ESV and the Legacy Standard Version say a remission or a resting from taxes. Now, that's a little bit of a, you know, I'm not convinced that the ESV is right. Exactly, it's hard for me to say that. But there you have it, okay? A remission of taxes, because the word is simply just a release. And so there may be an interpretation by the translators into the ESV or the legacy uh, that it is a re remission of taxation upon the people, which, be, which would be a release. But I don't think that's the issue. I think they just celebrated together with food and a day of rest. So the day of destruction planned by Haman has become the day of deliverance. All that Haman planned, all that Haman intended has failed. And here is a picture, dear brothers and sisters, of our great enemy, the devil, who has planned our destruction, who has planned our death. But Jesus has reversed the curse. And death holds no fear for us anymore, right? We are delivered. I mean, isn't that the beautiful, powerful verse of Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15? That since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the very same things, right? That, that through death he might destroy the devil, the one who had the power of death, and deliver all those who through fear of death their entire lives were subject to a lifelong slavery. Why did Jesus take flesh and blood? To destroy this devil. To destroy the works of the devil. What's the works of the devil? Your destruction. Your death. Jesus intervenes. Jesus comes. So Jesus destroys the power of Satan himself, which is the power of death, which brings us fear and bondage. And all people are under it. But he delivers us from the bondage to that power. You see, in what Jesus did, God has provided rest and relief for his people by saving them, by delivering them. In fact, we would confess that Jesus himself is our rest. My rest spiritually is in not what I know. It's not in my intellectual knowledge or the knowledge I have of Scripture and your knowledge of Scripture. My rest is not in those things. Our rest is in the person of the Son of God. Nothing less than Jesus. Not what you know, but Christ. You know, there is such a thing as faith in faith. And don't, don't have faith in faith, because faith in faith will damn you. No, Jesus alone is what we need and who we need. We rest in Him. We come to Him to find relief and to find re re uh, rest. And when we find rest, what is your response? Rejoicing. How can we not be thankful that Jesus died and Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus gave us life and our sins have been washed away? Surely we are thankful. Surely we are resting in such a glorious salvation. Let me give you some lessons to learn. First of all, there is no such thing, nor must there ever be such thing as Christian vigilantism. Vengeance, as I've said before, does not belong to any Christian. Okay? It's not our place 
to take vengeance. Vengeance belongs only to God. And God will enact vengeance as He sees fit. We have no right to take such matters into our own hands. God forbid that we do. There have been occasions of Christian vengeance. No, vengeance belongs to God. Secondly, there's no such thing as a holy war, though there are religions that engage in holy wars. Because the last great holy war was Jesus dying on the cross. That's the last great holy war that he fought once and for all. And he won, didn't he? He won the victory. We wage war now ourselves against sin within us, in our hearts. And we wage war in, against the world through our testimony of the grace of God in our lives. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, Paul says, but they are of divine power to destroy strongholds and to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10. We don't war with the sword. We war with our confession and the word of God. We war with our testimony, our life. Third, spiritual rest and spiritual relief should lead you to spiritual joy. If there's one thing that I would desire for all of you in all of my ministry over all the years is that you would be a joyful people, happy in Jesus. Happy that your sins are forgiven. Happy that you have such a glorious Savior. Happy that you know what you know in Jesus. The interesting thing about spiritual relief and spiritual joy is that they can be seen in the midst of suffering and in the midst of sorrow and in the midst of loss. You can find spiritual rest and spiritual joy. In fact, Paul says, chapter 5, verse 3 of Romans, we rejoice in our sufferings. And he says in Romans 12, verse 12, we should rejoice in hope. We should be patient in tribulation. We should be constant in prayer. And above all, as he says in Philippians 3, verse 1, and Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, he says, rejoice. Augustine said that the Christian should be a hallelujah from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. And John Flavel said that Job was a happier man on his dunghill than Adam was in paradise. You see, suffering. Luther said that the Christian should be a living doxology, praising, giving glory to God. Number four. It's obvious when you study the book of Esther, right, that God works in nations and God works among kings and rulers that don't even know Him and don't even acknowledge Him. He rules them. Does not our Lord Jesus Christ rule the nations with a rod of iron given to Him because of His victory over Satan at the cross, His victory over our sin and death? We are living in an increasingly secular society. Our culture is, it's abandoned God, hasn't it? What will stand in our culture against the prevailing decline of our culture? 
you, me. What we say with our mouths, our words, our testimony, by our lives, that's the only thing that stands. That's salt and that's light in this world. So don't give up being a testimony. Because God works through that, even though we are living in this increasingly secular society. There's nothing Christian about our country. There's nothing Christian about our culture. Nothing. Nothing. What has happened is that we have abandoned God and we have walked away from any belief in God and now we pay the price. The nation. And everybody you talk to, the nation is in decline. These are sad days, right? But God, always but God, is working. Even when He's judging He's working. Remember how he judged Israel over and over and over and over again to bring them back. Who knows what God is going to accomplish? All God wants is for his people to be his people, and to love him, and to serve him. It behooves us then, doesn't it, to be extra vigilant in these evil days, to live holy lives and godly lives, to be shining examples of grace, knowing that God can use us, sometimes even without knowing it. God can use you. And I say to us all tonight, we must walk by faith, not by fear and not by sight, but by faith only in the Son of God who loved me, loved you and gave himself for you, trusting in the power of God and the presence of God. See, I don't need to know the end of the matter, although I might want to know the end of the matter, I don't need to know it. Because I know God knows it. And he'll do what he's going to do. To him be all the glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word from the book of Esther. And teach us and help us to know these things and to learn them, we pray. Thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for the privilege of gathering with your people and being in your presence, fellowshipping one with another. Now we pray, Lord, that you would send us forth into the world to accomplish your purpose. Use us, we pray. Help us by our lives, by our testimony, by our confession to testify to the unsurpassing riches of Jesus. Thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. Oh, how rich we are in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the rest, spiritual rest you have given to our souls. Thank you for saving us by grace. Thank you for your love for us. Now we pray, use us for your glory. So thank you for each other and thank you for this time. And thank you for this Lord's Day. We commit ourselves into your hand. Pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.